few people still streaming in. Let's uh, welcome them uh, in silence as we sit together. If I offered a suggestion that you sit in such a way that uh, is dignified, a dignified upright sitting, even if you're lying down, that, that's okay. How do you express a dignified quality in your sitting?
and we may have interesting and quite varied impressions of what that word means. So I'm not suggesting that you perform in a way that some part of you thinks is dignified. And you may notice parts of you that have a reaction even to the word dignity or dignified. What if it streams from the deepest part of you without your own uh, th <clears throat> thoughts or comments, really? <clears throat> An innate dignity that then is expressed as you're sitting. Your sitting is that expression of upright dignity, not something you do while you sit. Allow that to be your companion for a few more minutes.
Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. If I look at all of you on the screen and I say, welcome bodhisattvas, is that a different feeling than welcome everyone? What if we look in this, in this way? As most of you know, um, yesterday was a, a holiday in the United States, at least. Um, uh, we, we call it Labor Day. I'm not sure if there's such a thing in the UK or, or in Switzerland or other places. Um, and for most of my life, really, I didn't really know much about what Labor Day was, except that it was when school started. You know, that's the time of year when, at least in my day, school started around Labor Day. Now it starts so much earlier. Um, but th there's a whole history which... I don't really need to go into, um, but it honors and recognizes um, the American labor movement primarily and the contributions uh, that hardworking individuals make in the United States. Um, and as you know, when I um, prepare to say something that might encourage us to reflect on our practice each week, I try to include what's actually happening in the world so that our practice is grounded and uh, an expression of our our lives together. And so I was thinking about uh, about Labor Day. And once again, without going into the historical aspect so much, I thought, well, what's my own personal practice perspective? Um, I like the alliteration of that, personal practice perspective. <laughs> um, and that's what I want to focus on. And, and one facet of it, because as I, as I sat with it, I realized, oh, aside from history and aside from the particulars of the um, labor movement, in some ways that the day honors the importance of human dignity, the dignity of people who work, all of us. And that's some of why I ask you to reflect on it during our sitting. And so, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think in my world people don't use the word dignity that much anymore. 
Um, it's pretty much defined as uh, the right of a person to be valued and respected uh, for their own sake. It's the kind of an intrinsic uh, worth, an intrinsic uh, dignity, of course, aside from, you know, economic or educational or ethnic factors or gender or sexual orientation or religious or political views is an intrinsic uh, worth, is a certain dignity. But there are also three other aspects to it that are worth commenting before I uh, get into sort of the Dharma reflections. Uh, and maybe these will be helpful. One of them is um, the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. For example, I might say, my Sangha friends, all of you, are people of great dignity and upright principles. And you're ethical, you're, I, I think of you as uh, people of dignity, the state of quality of being worthy of honor or respect. I have a lot of respect for you. We bow to each other. The second one is maybe a kind of dignity that's a, a composed or serious manner or style. For example, I might, you've heard me tell the story of my watching Blanche bow and use her bowing cloth in a service for the first time, and I was struck by her great dignity, the way she approached the altar, the way she handled her robes, a composed or serious manner or style. And then the third one is a sense of principled self-respect. Uh, for example, um, I might be with, with people who invite me to do something that feels off or something. So um, we might say it's beneath your dignity to engage in some unwholesome behavior. Does this make sense? These, these just little facets of it. Uh, like I could see you with... Um, as people of dignity, sometimes you act in ways that demonstrate that great dignity, and it would be beneath, beneath your dignity to be in any other way. So I think at the bottom, I think everyone deserves to be seen as having profound self-worth. Um, Carl Rogers talked about unconditional positive regard, which is an aspect of this. Uh, we say everyone has Buddha nature. You look at the screen and you say, welcome bodhisattvas. It's said that when the Buddha awakened, his view was that all he saw was awakening. He saw everything, but he saw it as an aspect of awakening. So coming back to our, our daily situation here, how does this relate to Labor Day? <laughs> or, or let's say to the dignity of work and the dignity of work practice. That's really where I want to focus on it in our, our practice element. The dignity of work and the dignity of work practice. Well, there was a, in the ninth century in China, there was a, a revolutionary teacher, Chan revolutionary, uh, Bai Zhang. There are several uh, koans with this fellow. Um, in Japanese, his name was Hyakujo. So if you see koans about Bai Zhang or Hyakujo, one of the most famous is about the fox, but that's, that's another story. But what he's most well known for is introducing basically um, 
manual labor as an essential practice in uh, monasticism. And from his um, book on the monastic rules, there's a phrase that is quoted a lot in Zen literature, which is, a day without work is a day without food. The literal characters in the statement are one day not work, one day not eat. <laughs> um, and so he was um, kind of a disciplinarian in some way, but and, and I think most of us can thank him for the introduction of work practice into our, our rhythm of practice. Or if you're in a temple, it would be called Samu, S-A-M-U in English, Samu, which is work practice. It's just as that chopping of vegetables and cleaning the toilets and sweeping the floors and taking care of the altar, all of that. Because there's dignity in everyday work. Because it reflects the bodhisattva vow of offering yourself and your practice and your energies for the benefit of beings and of everything around you. It's not, not complicated. There's a, a story that's told where um, one day some of Suzuki Roshi's students were on their way um, to the next activity in the temple and they came upon him in the, um, the public um, bathrooms, the toilets that are right off of the entry to city center uh, there in San Francisco, and he was cleaning the toilets. And so they, they said, what are you doing? And he said, why are you cleaning the toilets? And he said, because they need to be cleaned. And he said, there's time before meditation and before the evening meal. So why, what would we be waiting for? It's here. Let's do it now. And that kind of attitude of, of simply noticing what needs to be done and, and doing it. I remember when I was in, in Japan at Suzuki Roshi's temple at Rinsuin, and I, I'd never been in such a, a place before. I mean, I'd been in the, the temples in San Francisco, but here it was full time. And after about the first week, I can remember walking across the Buddha Hall, uh, a large thinking, what's next? Instead of thinking about myself. And that was a remarkable thing at that moment. Uh, I was thinking more about what needed to be done than how I was feeling or what, what I was thinking. And I noticed it. It's like something shifted. Something had turned. There was um, another very uh, interesting student at San Francisco Zen Center starting really early on when Suzuki Roshi first got there in the late 60s or in the 60s. And uh, some of you know of him, uh, Isan uh, Tommy Dorsey. For those of you who do not know, he was um, uh, sort of an ancestor of mine that I never met because reading his biography, uh, which by the way is called Street Zen, by David Schneider. It's a fascinating story. Uh, before he came to Zen practice, um, he'd been in the military, uh, lived in San Francisco after, and he was um, a drag queen and heroin addict. And then became uh, a very senior student 
living at Tassajara and then in the Castro area, as you know, in San Francisco, um, uh, kind of a, a you know, gay and lesbian kind of aspect. He, he was there when AIDS began and his home became uh, the Hartford Street Zen Center and also the Maitri Hospice, the first AIDS hospice in the United States. So he was a, a real bodhisattva. But back when he was in residence at, on, at Page Street, where most of my training was, uh, the story is that he was given his Dharma name by Suzuki Roshi while he was working one day. And Richard Baker, who was um, Suzuki's senior student at that time, there we go up the big this big staircase that goes up at, at uh, Page Street building, <clears throat> and the floors are all uh, polished concrete. And they came upon Isan. Uh, he had one of those big industrial floor polishers. Have any of you ever tried to use those? You know, they have them there because of these floors, and they're kind of unwieldy. They can get away from you, and they're very powerful. And he was wrestling this thing and working on the floors. And Suzuki Roshi looked at him and said, Isan, which means one mountain. Isan means one mountain. Um, because he was pointing to this uh, dignified effort. And that this dignified effort could shine through in this generous willingness to do something really well. And that was how he was demonstrating himself. The dignity that can shine through a generous willingness to do something really well. There are two famous old stories about this. You're just going to get stories today, pretty much, as we think about dignity. And these two come from Dogen's writing, the Tenzo Kyokan. Um, the Tenzo Kyokan is the instructions to the cook uh, that Dogen uh, put together, and in it he tells a couple of important stories. Um, here's story number one. This is Dogen. He says, when I was staying at Tiantong, a monk named Lu from Qingyang held the post of Tenzo. And the Tenzo is the uh, head cook. This, and the, the kitchen in a Zen temple or monastery is equal to the Zendo. It's a deep, powerful practice place. Uh, just ask Josh about this. So once, following the noon meal, D Duggan said, I was walking along an eastern covered walkway towards a sub-temple called Chowran Hut, where I came upon uh, this fellow in front of the Buddha Hall drying mushrooms in the sun. He had a bamboo stick in his hand and no hat to cover his head. The heat of the sun was blazing on the paving stones. Those of you in Texas can appreciate this. But I hear from Maria that it's also quite warm, even in northern England right now. So it's a lot of heat. Dogen says it looked very painful. His back was bent like a bow and his eyebrows, I love this, were as white as the feathers of a crane. I went up to the Tenzo, he said, and asked, how long have you been a monk? And he said, 68 years. And Dogen said, well, why don't you have an assistant to do this for you? Other people are not me. Other people are not me. There's, there's this profound dignity in being responsible for 
and turning toward what's in front of us and to attend to it. Not, not like a martyr, like, you know, this is this big burden I'm doing or to show off to the teacher or to other people or to compete, aren't I the best? Or any of the other things which can arise in these situations, but those are not dignified. Other people are not me. So Dogen went on, he said, well, venerable sir, I can see how you follow the way through your work, but still, why do this now when the sun is so hot? Teaching number two, if not now, when? If not now, when? How many times have we thought about something we could do in our practice and say that that would be really good to get to sometime? Or where we see something that needs to be done, but you think, well, that's actually not my job. Which isn't a dignified response. It's also not dignified to have no boundaries. So now we have a bit of a dilemma. But you can't leave everything to the same old people who will do all of the work. You know how that goes, right? Some of you are those people where in your organization or your family, you're the one who do, does everything. So then they give you everything because you'll do it. We can't leave things up to the teacher. Well, I don't need to do this because the teacher needs to make the decision or do something. It's a problem to take it on as a burden. It's a problem to slough it off and say, it's not my job. What's the middle way? And everyday practice helps us learn what that is. It can get a little conceptual here, but following your breath, when you're following your breath, follow your breath completely. When a thought comes up, meet it completely. When you hear a sound, listen completely. Don't delegate your authority regarding practice to someone else or some other time. Practice completely, just in the moment. Those simple things help us find that dignified, upright place. There's no special self to be, so we don't elevate ourself. And it's also not dignified to exhibit false modesty. Once again, see the middle way starts to show itself here. And Josh gave a talk recently and I, he's listening, so I hope I don't get this wrong. You can correct me later, or maybe I'll get the essence of it. But in his talk, I was very impressed with, um, he spoke of two moments in the context of, of his Dharma talk, but I took them to really address these teachings that Dogen is talking about in the Tenzo Kyokan. And Josh spoke of being at, um, I think it was Sainsbury, but anyway, a, like a, a store, a food store, supermarket, and he was reflecting on, um, I thought, moments of great, great dignity. Shopping at the market, he was waiting in line for this cashier that he knew, uh, one that was really friendly and warm and showed a lot of interest in customers. I'm, some of you probably do that too. You have your favorites, you know. And so 
apparently the way I understood the bit, this someone ahead of Josh asked the cashier for a particular card that they use in the store. Um, the, and then she didn't have one. So she gathered up her crutches and walked all the way across the store to get one just because it was needed. And she didn't hesitate and she didn't cause any drama. She simply did what was needed. If not now, when? Remember the teaching? Just immediacy. Oh, this is what's needed. And then he spoke of another story um, which unfolded in a really crowded train situation, which is super busy. And if you've ever, uh, we don't, we're not in trains so much here in at least most of the United States, but in Europe and the UK, it's uh, an interesting experience for us. And this train was really busy and really packed. And it was essentially impossible to get off in this situation at the correct stop. Like you couldn't get out in time. And so in all the chaos, one of the train attendants, one of the guards worked really hard to call ahead to the next station to explain the situation, to make sure they weren't going to have to pay uh, to get back on their return. This person, she simply and calmly worked to do what she could, even though the situation was overwhelming. I am not other people. Only she could do that. If not now, when? Why do you do this? I'm, I'm not other people. In story number two from the Tenzo Kyokan that uh, is also famous, Dogen says in May of 1223, I was staying aboard the ship at Kuiyan, and once I was speaking with the captain when a monk of about 60 years of age came aboard to buy mushrooms. Here we are with mushrooms again. I don't think they were psilocybin mushrooms. I think they were just from the ship's Japanese merchants. I asked him to have tea with me and asked where he was from. And he said he was the Tenzo, the cook from Aiwangshan. He said, I come from Zishu originally, but it's now 40 years since I've left there, and I'm now 61. I've practiced in several monasteries. When the Venerable Daoguan became abbot at Gunyan Temple, I went there, but just idled the time away, not knowing what I was doing. But fortunately, I was appointed Tenzo. He thought that was great fortune to be asked to do this big job. But fortunately, I was appointed Tenzo last year when the summer training period ended. And he said, tomorrow is May 5th, which is um, the anniversary of Bodhidharma's death. So it was a special day. And I didn't have anything special to offer the monks. So I thought I'd make rice noodle soup for them. And we didn't have any mushrooms. So I came here to give the monks something special from the 10 directions. So Dogen said, when did you leave the monastery to come here to get the mushrooms? And he said, after the noon meal. And he said, well, how far is it from here to return? He says, 12 miles. He said, well, when are you going back to the monastery? He said, I'll have to start walking as soon as I buy the mushrooms. And Dogen said, as we've had this unexpected opportunity to meet and talk like this today, why don't you stay a little longer and allow me to make a meal for you? 
And he said, no, no, I, I can't. I'm not here. <clears throat> I, if I'm not there to prepare the meal, it's not going to go well. I need to get back. And Dogen said, but surely someone else in the monastery knows how to cook. If you're not there, they'll, they'll make do. Nintendo said, I've been given this responsibility in my old age, and it's this old man's practice. How can I leave to others what I should do myself? How can I leave to others what I should do myself? And also, I didn't ask permission to be gone overnight. So two ways, he's upright and dignified. And Dogen continues, he says, why put yourself to the difficulty of working as a cook in your old age? Why not just do zazen and study the koan of the ancient masters? And the Tenzo laughed in his face and said, my foreign friend, because this is in China, see, and he was from Japan, it seems you don't really understand practice or the words of the ancients. And Dogen wrote, he said, I, when I heard him say this, I felt really ashamed and kind of surprised. So I asked him, what is practice? What are words? Because the old man had said, you don't understand practice really, and you don't understand the words of the ancients. So he said, what is practice? What are words? And the Tenzo said, keep asking and penetrate this question, and then you will become someone who understands. That Zen response. And Dogen wrote, he said, I didn't know what he was talking about. And so the Tenzo said, if you don't understand, then come and see me at the monastery sometime. We'll talk about the meaning of words. And having said this, he stood up and said, it'll be getting dark soon, I better hurry. And he left. So for me, this is dignity in action, in relationship. It's both the ethic of how can I leave to others what I should do myself? And also the, the teaching of persistence and staying with our practice until we understand a lifetime. This is dignified practice. It reminded me of being at Tassajara in the monastery because one of the conventions that we follow there is whenever you're walking anywhere and if you meet someone, you silently bow to them and then just keep going. So each person demonstrates this dignified respect for each person when they meet them, no matter how they feel about them. No matter if they have had a, a problem with them or they're irritated by them or a conflict or if they're in love with them, or somehow are attached to them, they just simply bow in a dignified way and move on. Without comment, out loud at least. <laughs> and there's something that happens when you do this over and over and over. I'm, uh, there's a, a manual you get if you're the work leader at, at Tassajara. And once again, just getting a lot of stories here. When you're when you start work practice at Tassajara, you all get together in a circle wherever your work group is. You're doing whether you're cleaning out the zendo or you're working in the garden or you're fixing the lanterns or you're digging trenches, whatever it is. Your group gets together, and you chant the metta sutta. 
the Sutra of Loving Kindness. That's how you start work. But I'm going to read just two little bits from the manual that, um, from the work leader at Tassajara. This is the words from the, the work leader's manual. It's pretty typical to see work as only a means to an end. Something that has to be done now in order to do the things we really want to do later. But Zen training takes work far beyond this small point of view. The founder of Tassajara, Shunryo Suzuki, valued work so highly as to say, first clean, then zazen. When work is practice, then it's seen as part of our zazen. It's an end in itself. Work and zazen go hand in hand. Both are necessary, and without one, the other suffers. When work is practice, it is a Buddha doing what a Buddha does. When work is practice, it is a Buddha doing work in the way that a Buddha does, how a Buddha does. So when our work is practice, it's less about what we're doing and more about how we're doing it, how we're manifesting Buddha. This particular how in Zen training refers to bringing our zazen, our Zen mind, into the place of our work. Zen mind is a willingness to engage ourselves wholeheartedly in whatever we're doing in the present moment. Whether it's making a bed, cleaning a toilet, chopping a carrot, or serving guests in the dining room. It is a radical willingness, a radical willingness to go beyond our usual limited small mind. The one that's ruled by its likes and dislikes, its prejudices, narrow points of view, fixed ways of seeing and doing things. The small mind is fueled by habit energy, which says, I don't like that kind of work. Or, I know all about that. When we bring our zazen practice into our work, we take a leap out of the conditioned small mind and into the freedom and generosity of the mind that is accepting, fresh and full possibility. This mind is unfettered. It's the mind of the beginner. It's beginner's mind. This is a dignified mind. One last story about Isan Dorsey. At Christmas time at Hartford Street Zen Center, one of his buddies wandered in the kitchen and uh, Isan was, had a big pork roast and he's putting garlic in it. You know how you cut it and put the garlic in? Raw pork, raw garlic. This is in a Zen temple. Two things you don't eat or cook in that kitchen. And he was working to put it in its foil and to... And so, so his friend said, what are you doing? And Isan said, oh, I, I'm trying to roast Cuban pork with mojo sauce for JD, who was the first AIDS patient there in the hospice. He was also, for a while, his boyfriend, I think. Uh, and in fact, I think that's how Isan contracted HIV and eventually died because of his dedication to JD. He told me that, um, JD told me that he loved it and it's Christmas. And he could never say no 
than JD. So, and people complained that he treated him like a spoiled child, but his friend in writing about this said, in my heart, I felt that Isan knew there, there'd be no more miracles in the last few months of this young man's life. It was just cooking a tricky Cuban dish with a lot of garlic. And Isan often said that um, Maitri, the name of the hospice there, was difficult work, taxing and demanding. Once he even compared it to war. And he, he said he'd been to war because he was in the Korean conflict. And it was not too much fun, but he said what made it bearable was to laugh a little and have some parties, tell a few jokes. And one of the most uh, difficult, delightful things he said was his work practice on the ship, which was baking chocolate chip cookies for the parties. And then his friend said, with his wigs and skirts optional. But life is wonderful, difficult, necessary, messy, amazing work. But to know that is dignified. And to choose dignity, to choose wakefulness, to choose to take the precepts as a map for how to live one's life is the dignity of practice. And I'm, I'm sorry I've gone on. I just have one more thing that I thought was so beautiful. One of my Dharma friends from Portland, uh, Sally Teasdale, some of you read some of her things, I think. And she had given a talk on dignity at one point. And this is how she ended. She said, Dogen used the phrase conduct and observance as a marker of how to express our understanding. Conduct, our behavior, and reflection on our behavior. How we behave in any given moment, he wrote, is a complete expression of enlightenment. Circumstances are unimportant. We should learn, he wrote, dignified behavior as the whole cosmos and dignified behavior as the whole earth. The dignified posture of Zazen is the body in the great truth, being relaxed. Zazen is this body, expressing the great truth, being relaxed. And I'll end with her ending because I think it's so beautiful and poetic. She said, I'm writing this as snow falls, and I watch the almost silent transformation of the textured world into a smooth plane where differences disappear. You can imagine the snow covering everything. I'm looking at Denise when I say this because that year when the cover snow covered everything. The snow falls in fragments so delicate that a mere breath can destroy them. The way moments fall. The way our life passes by. It covers the earth with something strong and solid and pure. Here is the core meaning of self-worth for a person of the Dharma. Each of us may be nothing more than a moving wave of change, but we are waves able to know this fact. We rise and fall in an infinity deep and infinitely, excuse me, we rise and fall in an infinitely deep and timeless sea, upright and undisturbed. We share the vast 
dignity of awakening. As we sit, we share the vast dignity of awakening. As we sit with each other on the screen, we sit together in retreat. We sit alone. We share the vast dignity of awakening. So this is our dignity of being together here now, like this. So I know I've taken a great deal of our time. Um, um, but if this calls forward something about your own practice in the call to uh, understand what the dignity of, of awakening really expresses and how important it is and the way that we are in the world, uh, please come forward. And if I've got your stories wrong, Joshi, please uh, correct them. Sandra. Mm -hmm. um, so that um, didn't really touch me when you were saying bowing Buddha to Buddha. It's really, um, I can feel that opening in this moment. Um, at the same time, the sadness of, it's a poignancy, isn't it? Yeah. Almost a brokenheartedness, but not negative. No, not negative. It's just like, um, for me, the, yeah, it's the sadness of um, where we are as a human beings. And it's very simple. Like, I, it's not simple. It looks simple, but it's not that. But that's simplistic, but it is simple. Exactly. Is that what you are saying? That what I what I feel in me is that um, commitment that I have to myself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I can project when I'm going around everybody. Mm -hmm. And I can feel when I do that, my conditions can go down. Yes. It's like what you say, instead to start going more, what my conditions tell me what to do, not to do. Um, and that and that just bring that to me is like, um, and even though now saying that is some tears coming to my eyes. Exactly what I was going to say for myself. If we really notice the other person and really notice ourselves, not leaving either behind, and we bow and really look at each other, you're going to weep. Yeah. But but you can't explain why. No. It's just this intimacy of that connection, that moment. The beauty and the exquisiteness of the other and the difficulty and the struggle of what it means. All of yeah. it. All of it. All of it. And yeah, and, and just to, to hold it, mm -hmm. to hold all that. And that's what our form and our dignity is, is the container for holding all. Yeah, yes, and that dignity, when you say that, it's really, it can bring to me in this moment, this opening in my heart and just opening to everything. What, what's the word in Spanish or similar? Well, it's like estar abierto, abrirme a lo que hay en este momento. 
Yeah, I see the light in your face when you say it in that yeah. way. Yeah, well, yes, it's, it's really so interesting how it's touching you on, for me, my own roots. Yeah. Because I can tap it with that very deep. Yes. And that's, that's my point. I'm telling stories, but I want people to tap into their own dignity and the dignity of everyone. Because when we bow and we don't lose ourselves, we also remember you or me, this larger self also we don't lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. We have Josh and Trudy. Mm. Uh, thank you, Flynn, for um, offering me the experience of of my talk and those moments in, in the supermarket and and in the train and um it, it offered me an opportunity to 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 be with it again. Um and I love the the resonance you and respect you had had for it. And I think one of the interesting things is I was waiting in the queue wondering about what to say in a Dharma talk. So I wasn't, at one point, I wasn't very attentive to what was what was going on. Um, but once I became absorbed in the, in, in the kind of drama that was, was happening, um, it was very, very beautiful because it, reinforce for me how everything is is actually just in front of you waiting to be to be seen and recognized and um there was your talk there, there was my talk um and the the woman on the train was was also my talk and and in both you know there's a in way i could have been impatient about being in the queue I could have been upset about not being able to get out of the train, but it was it offered beautiful um, moments to to be with. And um, this this woman doesn't know um, doesn't know what she's doing. She's very unself conscious, and so it's very simple. And um, it feels like there's a there's the ceremony of the checkout, and she. She's, she's sitting in her seat, um, and uh, then she says, she always says, how are you today? And I usually say, I'm, I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for the food. And, and we look at each other, and there's a moment of, of meeting. Um, and, and it feels to me that, that it's just so possible to miss these things. But that's the mind of practice, which begins to notice, not self-consciously, like you said, she doesn't know what she's doing necessarily, or she it doesn't seem like she does. And then, uh, you know, when Dogen writes, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice that they are Buddhas, yeah. that they were actualized Buddhas who go unactualized. You know, it's the unselfconsciousness, which is mm. part of the quality. Mm. Mm. It's natural. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not performative. But I'll never check out again in the same way 
after you're saying the ceremony of checking out. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember we, we once were very grateful for the phrase, can you believe what you're seeing here in relation to art? Can you, can you actually see this painting? And there was something about about that phrase which which accompanies me through what apparently the smallest things, but they're the window into something really vast. So yeah. thank you for thank you. It also reminds me of the phrase we've used many times about uh, when you're alone, practice like you're with others. Mm. With others, practice if you're alone. Um, when, when you're alone, still be dignified. Mm. Uh, it's like when I do the robe chant before I put on my rakasu, I, I want to remember not to do it casually, like to get it over with. I stand in front of the altar. I do it as fully as I might if people were watching me. And then also when you're uh, with others practice, if you're alone, I'll make sure I don't compare myself. Yeah. Offer myself, offer myself. Yeah. That's some idea I have of myself or like, maybe I can be like Josh or Trudy, you know, <laughs> although that's not a bad thing, but. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh I was just thinking too about um, when we were with our friend recently who was dying, um, when she was still talking a little bit more, at one point she said, I'm scared. And I I kind of leant forward thinking that, you know, she was going to talk about being scared of dying. And um, she said, I'm scared of seeing pe people seeing me when I'm not quite dressed. And there was... Um, you know, there was a way in which it kind of felt like slight, but there was so much dignity in how she wanted to be in the world, to not be, you know, caught. And I said, I, th I think, I think, you know, Margaret is taking a lot of care of your dignity, um, you know, because it felt really that's, and she had such a lot of dignity. And I, and I was really struck by that, you know, I don't want to be, I want to, I want to be as I am to the world, not caught. Yeah, it wasn't just vanity. There was a dignity. It's a different thing. It mm -hmm. really didn't feel like vanity. It really didn't. It really felt quite a, you know, a really like, yeah, no, you're being taken care of, mm -hmm. you know, because she couldn't control who was coming in and out the door. Um, but that, that really struck mm -hmm. me, and there was something about her dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, so many lessons from people. Yes, I was listening to a um, an interview, which some of you have seen. I think I've sent it out to some of you. Um, the person being interviewed was Frank Ostastecki, who from Zen Center Hospice has done a lot of work. And the interviewer asked him, because he was speaking at that time after he'd had a whole series of strokes himself and almost died. So he was speaking out of great vulnerability. And she said, uh, I'm going to say a bad word, excuse me, but... She, she said, is there anything, having sat with people for all these years who are dying, that now, having had your experience, you would think was bullshit? And he said, yeah. And she said, what is it? And he said, um, reassuring people when something happens that it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. He said, I was with a man who had AIDS. He was near the end of his life. 
and we were together and he reached for something and he knocked over his glass of milk on the bedside and he screamed and and frank said oh it's no big deal and the guy turned to him he said it's a very big deal trying to maintain one thing yeah the the dignity of our humanness yeah and this i think is anywhere where i've come to and where we've come to today when i was thinking about labor day and and work and offering ourselves for the benefit of all Mm. how do we maintain our 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 dignity and uprightness in the midst of everything and and how in some ways we're um, thinking about the dignity of of everyone's labor Mm. you know Mm. 72 labors brought us the food we should know mm-hmm. how it comes to us <laughs> to receive this offering we should consider what our practice you know we chant this over and over it's like it's it's this is real mm-hmm. so i just want to just want to um add some wonder that this woman who's offered this work um you know has become the subject of a dharma talk in lancaster and now it's flowing through the, the universe and um you never know you never know what what ripples will um emerge from the simplest of kindnesses exactly mm-hmm. that's that's the attention we bring to our practice rippling from lancaster to albuquerque mm-hmm. yeah to joel uh, John McEnroy has um, had his hand up um, through the chat, if you like. He's just got a brief question, so um, let me know what you'd like to do, Flint. Uh, well, we're kind of at the end of our time. I don't want to take uh, a brief question. Go ahead. We'll, we'll see what we can do. We'll do our best. Hey, John. Make sure you unmute yourself. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. So a long time ago, I was in the Hakomi course, you know, back in Austin. And I was saying I wanted to help people in some times. And you said, well, take that and set it down on a seat beside you rather than help them. And I've been in a group therapy situation before where people said I was trying too hard to help. Now I'm in a retirement home and I see people all over the place that need could use some help. And so I'm wondering, is there some criterion I can use to uh, decide when to help and when not to? That's a big question, John, and a really good one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, if it, uh, there's a koan which Blanche wrote in my Rakasu for ordination, a line uh, from it, it said, uh, now on, if you want to help people, let it flow from your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's an idea you have about what people need and you think you know what they need, that's actually your idea of helping. But just meeting people and letting your natural response come forward is a different thing. And this is what Dogen was talking about, about ideas, words, and practices. If it's your, most people help from a self-centered idea. I'm going to help them because I know what they need, or I think I know what they need, even if it's generous. 
But meeting a person deeply, like Sandra was saying, bowing to them, connecting with them, being in some immediacy, and finding what might be needed. That's the help, finding what's needed, not, not just what you offer. So mm. take that and do it, see where you go with it. Mm. Okay, thanks. But that'll be helpful to others too. Thanks, John. <laughs> So it's difficult if we're uh, caught in the self-centered dream. It's only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just to this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much, Flint, and then thank you everybody for for being here today. Um, if you'd like to offer Diana um, to Flint and to, and to any of the Appamada programs and facilities that are supported through all of your generosity, then please do go to appamada.org forward slash contribute, and you'll see a place there to offer Diana, and you can put in the box where you'd where you'd like your offering to go to. Thank you all so much. And if you'd like to continue with myself and others for a further 30 minutes, uh, well, a little bit less than that today, but please do pop yourself into gallery view and I shall join you in just a moment. Thank you all so much. See you all soon. Thank you.